BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to Right on Hollywood with Christian Toto, part of the Just the News Podcast Network. Sick of media bias infecting film reviews? Furious that too many stars insult your views? Right on Hollywood has your back. Christian is an award-winning journalist, movie critic, and founder of HollywoodinToto.com, the right take on entertainment. Now here's your host, Christian Toto. Welcome to Right on Hollywood, a proud member of the Just the News Podcast Network. This week's show is brought to you by Disney+. Plus. Subscribe today, or we'll give Jar Jar Banks his own series. You know, right on Hollywood launched last year, and the show didn't exactly light the podcasting world on fire. It's hard to admit, but it's true. But now? Well, we're not going to kick Ben Shapiro off the top of the charts, but downloads are growing, and I'm really happy about that. So I thought I'd introduce myself again to both new listeners and the folks who've been sticking around for a while. You know, those new kids on the block. I self-identify as a failed art major. With three degrees I've yet to use, let alone dust off. I actually decided to become a movie critic after college, except they don't really give you those gigs out of the gate. So I improvised. I worked as a municipal reporter for a while, even though I had no idea what I was doing. Then I became a features reporter, and I was slightly better at that, a little more qualified, but all the while, I had my eye on the prize, becoming a film critic. Siskel, Ebert, Shallot, Toto. What a dumb plan. But, you know, what was I thinking? But it actually worked. I ended up reviewing films for the Washington Times for a while, and it was the very best gig I've ever had. I saw concerts and plays, all sorts of stuff, all on the company's dime. Although, to be fair, it's really the PR department's dime. But you know what I mean. And of course, at that point, I got on the movie screening press list, first in D.C. and then now in Denver. They've yet to kick me off. I'm really happy about that. Along the way, I realized that most film critics lean to the left. Of course, now it's often aggressively to the left. And conservative audiences had very few options in this area. They, no one was really speaking to them, at least not in any sort of major way. So I leaned into my politics. It's kind of a mashup of old school conservatism and a, a bit of libertarian thinking. And I let loose. So here I am. That's how I get, that's my origin story. It's kind of been a long, strange trip in a way, but I'm really fortunate to have stuck around to be able to survive, to have a career on my own terms. It's really what I wanted all along. It just took a long time to get there. And I've been doing a lot of press for my new book, Virtue Bombs. And one of the things I've been asked quite a bit is, well, you're a right of center film critic. Are you being punished for those views? Is there any sort of fallout for being who I am? You know, it makes sense. I mean, James Woods no longer makes movies because his peers hate his conservative views. That's wrong. 
James Woods is a brilliant actor. He should be working all the time. He's not. Other stars, as we know, keep their right-leaning views to themselves because they fear of getting treated like James Woods. So why not me, a conservative film critic? Certainly I'm getting pummeled, right? I'd have to say mostly no. It really hasn't been that way. Now, you know, like actors who don't get gigs that they're not aware of, I may not be aware of opportunities I've lost or things that could have gone my way that didn't. So it is possible I've missed out on some really cool stuff along the way because I am right of center. But generally speaking, I get pretty similar access to what my liberal peers get access to. Movie screenings, celebrity interviews, a junket here or there. I've also interviewed some of the biggest stars in Hollywood, live and in person, and that's really cool. Over the years, I've talked to Will Smith, Tom Hanks, Albert Brooks. That was amazing. I just, I had to tell him that. My, my family always talked about the nest egg joke from Lost in America. I'm sure he's heard that a million times, but I, I said it anyway. Uh, John Travolta, a lot of others too. I even quizzed Kevin Spacey about his Bobby Darren biopic a few years back. Without incident, I might humbly add. I think for me, the biggest change over the years has happened internally, not externally. I've really grown wary of Hollywood, which is weird because I love Hollywood. I grew up on Hollywood. I, I forged this bizarre career I have because I enjoy movies so much. And, you know, this isn't just about the fact that my politics don't agree with the average actor. My wife's a Bernie bro. I, I, I'm used to that. I get that. It doesn't make me happy. I wish my wife would vote a different way. I wish my favorite stars would vote a different way. That's, but that's not a big deal to me. What is a big deal are stars that insult half the country, sometimes aggressively so. Also, the stars who don't stand up for free speech and their fellow actors when they're canceled unfairly. The stars that do the apology tour circuit if they say or do the wrong thing. And yes, I'm doing that scare quote thing with my fingers right now. It's a podcast. Got to take my word for it. That, that, that's been harder, honestly. And sometimes I just want to be a film geek and just share reviews and bicker about favorite movies and complain about the ones I think are stinkers. You know, that's exactly what Chris Gore does on Film Threat. He's a previous guest on this show, and he has a great podcast. And it's just, he is sort of what I want to be when I grow up. Chris Gore loves movies, is not woke, it's perfect. And that's really why I got into this whole business anyway. I, I didn't, when I was a younger man, I didn't think, oh gosh, I want to go fact check a Michael Moore movie. No, I want to go review films and, and share what I love about them and kind of, you know, also share what I hate about them. It just was my passion. It's what I used to do with my, my high school buddies back in the day. We'd go watch a movie. We'd go sit in a diner afterwards and just completely dissect the film. That's, that's kind of my film critic training in a weird way. And that, that's kind of where I, where I am here today. So... That's, uh, it's been changing in recent years. We've, we're living in more tribal times, but I do try to, at the end of the day, stick to that or at least not lose sight of that. I love movies. I'm grateful for the job I do, and I'm lucky to do it. So, well, that's a little bit about me. For the newbies in the crowd, I really appreciate you checking out this podcast. It means a ton to me. I put a lot of work and blood and sweat and tears and all the cliches into it, and I hope you stick around because we're just getting started here at Right on Hollywood. You're listening to my dad's podcast. He cried like a baby watching Snoopy come home. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. 
Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. This week's Toto's take is Here Comes the Boom. Love that title. Kevin James stars as a teacher trying to score some cash because his school's music department is going to be canceled. Doesn't have money, can't keep it going. So he learns about an MMA contest where the loser of about gets $10,000. Not a bad payday for getting your butt kicked, right? So he decides to go for it. And of course, he hits the gym, learns a little bit something about life and about himself as well along this journey. The film hit theaters around 2012. And I feel like at that point, UFC fighting, MMA, that whole culture was really starting to bubble up. I thought, man, this movie is going to be big. It's sort of catching the zeitgeist at just the right time. And not exactly. It didn't do well at the box office. It's still one of James's best performances. It's something you could watch with the whole family. There are some bumps and bruises along the way, but it's certainly not a hard R affair. Now, one particular note is that Kevin James became a box office star because of those Paul Blart movies, which are universally derided by critics. I'm not a huge fan myself, but Here Comes the Boom is better than both of those. Another quick note on the film, which is available right now on Hulu, by the way, and why, one of the reasons why I'm mentioning it. I interviewed Kevin James in connection to the film a few years ago, around 2012 again. He was really interesting. I thought he was smart, engaged, a good conversationalist, really had a passion for this kind of UFC-style fighting, and that really mattered. Except he rarely looked me in the eye during the whole conversation. And that stuck with me all these years later. I don't think I've ever talked to a celebrity who didn't make eye contact the way Kevin James didn't make eye contact. Now, interview aside, Here Comes the Boom didn't get enough attention during its release. Maybe we can fix that viewer by viewer. But I'd say I'd interview Kevin James again in a heartbeat. Nice fellow. Great conversation. The eye thing, just a little weird. As I've said before, I'm married to a very liberal woman, and I'm always preaching it that we need to reach across the aisle at least more than we do right now. It's exactly what Bill Maher and Ben Shapiro did on the Daily Wire co-founder's show, Sunday Special. It was a great conversation. I highly recommend it. They agree. They disagree. They did it amiably. No, no fisticuffs, no fighting, no screaming. More of that, please. And yet, I don't think I do enough of that myself. I've got a website. I've got a podcast. And get on it, right? So this week, I'm taking a little step to change that. The show's guest is Mike McGranahan. He's a smart veteran film critic whose work can be read at aisleseat.com. Great, what a great URL. He's been reviewing films for a while now, and he's got a killer story how he entered the business, which you'll hear in a minute. I didn't see it coming, but he's got a lot of chutzpah, and I love that part of him. Now, Mike is smart. He's the author of two books, including Straight Up Blatant and My Year of Chevy, one Guy's Journey Through the Films of Chevy Chase. Again, a great idea. I need to catch up with that one. And obviously, Mike has a passion for movies like I do. Can't deny it. You can see it in his writing. He's been doing it for such a long time now. And I love people who enjoy and relish films like that. They're just my people. Now, if you follow Mike on Twitter, you'll see he's openly left of center and capable of throwing a few sharp elbows online. And I, I confess I do that sometimes myself, but... We agreed to disagree a few years back on no safe spaces. We didn't, I don't think we saw eye to eye. I don't think we changed each other's minds, but we did have a nice discussion about it. I popped it up on my website, hollywoodandtoto.com. So I thought, well, Mike is a perfect person to invite in the show. You think I was right after the conversation happened? See if you agree. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Mike, thanks for joining the show. Now, I got into film criticism in a very odd way, kind of just entered different newspapers and elbowed my way in gently until until they let me review some films. It feels like a career where there's no real set path. It's not like becoming a lawyer or a doctor where there are very defined steps you take along the way. So I'm kind of curious, how did you get here? How did you become a film critic? I also had a very unusual story. I had written movie reviews for my high school newspaper and for my college newspaper. And while I was still in college on a whim and at the encouragement of a friend of mine, I wrote a letter to the editor of my hometown newspaper, which is just a very small weekly kind of thing. And I said to her, you don't have movie reviews in your newspaper. You really need to have a film critic. And I'm the guy that you should hire for that job. (laughs) And to my surprise, she called me one day and said, "Okay, you convinced me. I'll give you a shot. Nice. And that was my first paying gig as a film critic and everything Mm. else kind of built from there. Wow. That was a bit of an aggressive move for a younger person, but it worked perfectly, apparently. It worked very well. Yeah. I mean, I I just decided to roll the dice. I was in college. I had that mindset of, hey, Mm. nothing ventured, nothing gained. Right, right. And uh, it worked out. And I was with that newspaper for five years and then new owners bought it. And as new owners tend to do, they got rid of everybody who was there. And that was the point where I moved over to online because this was 1995 when mm. the internet was first just starting to come into people's homes. And I've been there ever since. And it's led to opportunities in radio and uh, on television and in print and all kinds of things that I could never have imagined. I don't want to dismiss your abilities and talent, but uh, besides that early moxie, what do you think has been sort of the secret to your success over the years? Uh, just a lot of hard work. I mean, I, I, this was my dream job from the time that I was about six or seven years mm-hmm. old. So I have always treated it like a full-time profession, even during those years when I really wasn't getting paid much for it. I've just always worked really hard, written as much as I could, taken it as seriously as possible. And I think that that's paid off. Gotcha. I, I grew up on the Siskel and Ebert model. Love them. Love the show. Actually, yeah. the, the only fan letter I've ever written in my life was to Gene Siskel. And I'm, I'm ashamed to say he didn't write back. So uh, shame on Gene, but maybe he was too busy. But uh, <laughs> I feel like the landscape today of critics is really different. Obviously, online changes everything. Uh, Rotten yeah. Tomatoes is another game changer as well. Do you think, kind of comparing when you first entered the business to today, is it better? Is it just wildly different? What are some ways where it's maybe frustrating? What's your just general sense of, of the landscape of film criticism? I think it is wildly different. I mean, when I started the ILC in 1995, the internet was still very new and nobody really knew what movie reviews could be online. And in fact, it wasn't looked at as a legitimate outlet. It was looked at as something where any yo-yo with a computer can mm-hmm. write a review and put it on there. Uh, That obviously has changed because now every critic is an online critic because every outlet has an online component. Uh, I think it's gotten harder in terms of making a living in this career because now there are so many outlets and there are so many critics fighting for the same jobs. But on the plus side, the playing field has been leveled. 
And there's more opportunity for diversity, no matter who you are, what your beliefs are, you can now have a real shot at becoming a film critic, which when I first started off was a lot less possible. Yeah. It's uh, there's a, a guru in the marketing space who says there's riches in the niches. And I think even if you are a film critic, you can kind of drill down and maybe be the horror person or the uh, uh, indie romance guru or something and, and, and draw a following. And it's, it's one of the, one of the perks of the, the online world. One thing I've noticed when I first entered the business, my, my future wife and I would tease about the, a fellow critic. I won't mention his name. He's very talented. But he hated everything. <laughs> I said, you know, uh, yes. he would he would review like Oscar bait movies and give him one and a half stars, and I'm like, wow. And and I, and I, I you know I thought to myself, I never want to be that person just because he just seemed like he right. wasn't enjoying it that much, or maybe just didn't enjoy the films he was seeing. And I look at myself today, and I think I I do feel a bit grumpier. I, I'm in this for about 20 years now. And I feel a little harder to please. I feel a little more burned out on formula and things like that. And I'm trying to trying to be aware of it and try to not fall into that. But as a critic, for, you see a ton of films as well. Do you think mm-hmm. you've changed at all? I mean, how does being a critic for a long time uh, – so, I mean, I think it can't help but change you. But do you, do you sense anything differently about the way you process films, your reviews, anything about the process? Yeah, I think that I definitely prize originality a lot more than I did. Because when you're a film critic, you take the example of romantic comedies. The average person might see a romantic comedy occasionally. We see all of them. And so we see the same cliches and the same tropes again and again and again, and they become tiresome. So, you know, I sit down and I watch a movie like this recent Jennifer Lopez one, Marry Me, and it's not a bad movie, but I'm sitting here thinking, I have seen this same formula a million times. So I, I probably come off sometimes as a little harder mm-hmm. on these movies than an average moviegoer would, uh, not because I'm, I'm cranky or difficult to please, but just because I recognize that they don't have much going for them that hasn't already been done before. Yeah, I, I agree, and I think that was a perfect example, too. And I, I, think, I, I think I'm a little tougher on that one than you are, but it, it, the tropes are exhausting. And But I also find that sometimes you can lean into them, and if there's enough... I don't know whether it's chemistry or ingenuity or just heart. It, it actually can be fine. I, I mean, I don't mind formula when it's done done well, but I, I was maybe not the best example. You know, when I was growing up, I you had being a film critic on the front burner. I had it way on the back. It was on my mind. I love movies. And just my career kind of ended up in this direction. But I never thought about the politics of being a film critic. And I, I, I wasn't even a political mm-hmm. person until like, the, I think September 11th just sort of just shook me up. And now I'm, I'm this openly right-leaning film critic. And I, I don't know if you and I would even be having this conversation about that topic, you know, 20 years ago. It didn't seem like it was really in the zeitgeist. What are your thoughts yeah. on, on sort of the political leanings of critics and how that seems to be, you know, listen, we live in a tribal times. It seems to be more either obvious or more talked about or what's your just general sense on that? Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, Politically, our country right now obviously is very divided. We've been through a lot of really difficult things since September 11th, and movies reflect that, and I think that reviews reflect that too. I am encouraged by the fact that there are critics all across the political spectrum looking at things from different angles, and I think that's important. And uh, you know, beyond that, it's just kind of a matter of what each critic wants to do. I mean, I know there are some critics who very much put their political views overtly into their work. And that's fine. And, and I've read a lot of great writing that way. 
Uh, for me personally, I have a policy of just reviewing what's up on the screen and leaving my personal politics out of it and just mm -hmm. focusing on the filmmaking. Uh, but I think that you have that freedom and, and that's what's good. You know, we can have a bunch of different writers and maybe some of them want to go into it more and some of them want to go into it just kind of in a little bit of shading. But uh, it is important because it does reflect what's going on in our culture. Yeah. You know, one thing I try to do, my side is right leaning. It's obvious. I make it apparent and I embrace mm -hmm. that. I don't I don't hate a movie because it has <laughs> a liberal theme. I, I try to be better than that. But also when I'm right. on, I do some radio shows and, and there's one in D.C. I've been doing for years and. I know it's a mainstream audience, and I know it's not a politically inclined audience. I mean, it's in D.C. You know, it's a left-leaning area, but they're not expecting that. So I kind of actually tailor my reviews, and I'm very careful about not, not share, sharing my politics in them. I, I think, to me, if you're a reviewer for The Nation or you're a reviewer for National Review, I think it's perfectly fine to kind of lean into that. But I think like the mm -hmm. work that you do, you're on different stations and different you know, uh, platforms. And I, I, think, I think that's... I think where that neutral approach or the best you can be at neutral is, I think that's a good mix. What, what are your thoughts on that as far as, you know, embracing your ideology to a point where what is the audience expecting? What, what, I'm just going to kind of curious your reaction to that. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's true. I, I've always taken the approach with the ILC and with my work that it's, it's for everybody. If you want to leave overt politics behind and just focus on movies, it's a place you can come. But for me, I, I've always felt like the movie itself is important and i have given positive reviews to movies whose message i disagreed with and i've given negative reviews to movies whose message i did agree with because i, I just feel like focusing on the filmmaking um then you can get into the shadings of politics a little mm. more without being overt you know you're kind of giving a movie an opportunity to say okay here's my message and you watch the movie and you're open to that idea whether you agree with it or not and and that's something that i think is very important and i i hope more critics will do and not just shut a movie down mm. because they feel like they're not going to agree with it gotcha you know I, I generally speaking conservatives are no fans of affirmative action it's not sort of the generic leaning of that group but if you look mm -hmm. at film criticism it, it, it is really mostly left of center if if politics enter the the conversation giving that like a, a michael moore movie has a better chance of getting a a, a friendlier reaction than a dinesh d'souza it's i think that's right. maybe, maybe the most extreme example should that matter i mean if if the country's kind of sort of split halfway do we need more conservatives or is i mean my my general answer is let the free market decide but i'm just kind of mm -hmm. from from your perspective what do we encourage more right of center or more even more Christian film reviewers? I mean, how do we how do we tackle a landscape that is imbalanced at the moment? Yeah, I think the free market does decide to a degree. Uh, my belief has always been that the more diversity of voices we have in film criticism, the better, mm -hmm. because movies are diverse and the ideas in them are diverse, and you just get a lot more interesting perspective. So I I have been in favor of the inclusivity push that places like Rotten Tomatoes have had for more critics of color, more critics on the LGBT community. But I would also agree that having more right-leaning critics helps too. That's just added perspective to balance out the fact that the majority of film critics probably are more on the left side, uh, more moderates. You know, I, I just feel like the more voices we have, the better and the healthier film <laughs> criticism is overall. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Uh, I was going to get quick thoughts on cancel culture before we move on. I, I'm obsessed with it. I write about it. I've wrote a book about it. And I think 
to me, I I, I kind of whittle it down to this. I think that when it comes to cancel culture and the sort of that, the sort of the, I guess the landscape of it, is that if you're a creator and you want to tell a story, I suspect that there may be some self-censorship within that creative community where I'd like to tell this story or like to tell this perspective, but it may not be well-received. It may inspire blowback, if not even a full cancellation, not even that, but just that I don't think that that's a, a healthy environment for a creativity that if a story is ugly or if it's something that doesn't resonate, then I think people will recoil and people won't show up in theaters. And I think that's sort of the, the better sort of... Um, measuring stick but when it comes to cancel culture any any sort of specific thoughts you've had because it's been it's the topic du jour for sure yeah absolutely uh, i'm not entirely sure that i buy into the the concept of canceling i mean you look at somebody like mel gibson who has said racist things he said anti-semitic things we know that a number of years ago he beat up one of his girlfriends rather brutally uh, he assaulted a female police officer and yet next month, he's starring in a movie called Father Stew with Mark Wahlberg that's being <laughs> distributed by Sony Pictures, which is one of the biggest entertainment conglomerates in Hollywood. So, you know, I don't really necessarily know there's an example where somebody has been canceled and they've been kind of erased. Uh, beyond that, I think that I think that cancel culture has been attributed mostly to the left, but I really see it as being something that we're all guilty of. I don't think it's a left issue. I think it's kind of an everybody issue. So, for example, when the Dixie Chicks years ago criticized George W. Bush uh, on stage at one of their performances, that ended their career. Country stations wouldn't play them anymore. People were burning their records. You know, more recently, we had that situation with Kathy Griffin where she held the severed bloody head that looked like Donald Trump, and she lost gigs because of that, and people protested at comedy clubs not to book her. So I, I really think it's on both sides. But to me, it's it's more just a reaction. It's it's consequence culture. If you say something or do something provocative or that's going to offend a certain percentage of the people, they're going to react. And you just have to be prepared for that. And some people maybe don't care. Maybe some people like the controversy or they say, this idea is important enough to me that I'm going to say it or do it. And that's fine. But I'm not sure anybody has ever really fully canceled because of it. I think the Mel Gibson example is interesting because I, I also think there's a difference between saying something that people disagree with and then actual either violence or just out and out awful things. And I think, you know, the Mel Gibson's, mm -hmm. the, the Harvey Weinstein is the ultimate example of that. Uh, sure. But I also think that Mel Gibson went away for a while. He was a huge movie star and had everything on his side. And I think that the industry kind of just said, okay, n no, we're not going to deal with you for a while. And then he went away, and then he kind of did a couple of indie films, and he kind of built himself back. And I I don't agree with anything he did back in the day, but I, I also want there to be some sort of forgiveness for people who do horrible things or bad things or say rotten things, that there can be some sort of avenue where they could have repentance or just say, yeah, I screwed up, and you know, and I, I'd like to come back. Can can you accept me? And I, I, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I think there's sometimes space for that, and sometimes they're not. I mean, like Louis C.K. You know, his his career was just trashed, and what he did was just gross. And I think he's kind yeah. of building it back on his terms in a way where he's not on any major platforms. He's basically completely indie. And if you want to see him, and you you can swallow the crap he did, you do it. Uh, I, I, I one other thought before we I would move on. One thing that does frustrate me is that there are some performers who able, are able to say really horrible things and nothing happens to them. And like Alec Baldwin and, and Bette Midler has some, said some really kind of rough things. 
And I, right. I, I, that's my frustration. And it's something I, I think you and I agree on a lot of stuff and disagree on some stuff. But I, 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 I want kind of I want you to be aware that I think for people like me, we see a, a disparity there where a Gina Carano says something on Twitter. You could say it's stupid or, or insensitive and she's you know removed from a show. But, you know, look at Google. I mean, you know, Alec Baldwin, what he's been up to even before sure. this tragic shooting. He does some horrible things. Yeah, I mean, sort of homophobic uh, comments and alleged racism. Yeah. And so I, I think that frustrates um, people on the right where there's sort of a, not a, okay, this person did it and then they're canceled or they're punished, but then this person gets away with it. A- any, any thoughts there? Mm-hmm. No, I agree. I mean, we're human beings. Double standards and hypocrisy are kind of baked into us. It's one of the flaws of humanity. Uh, so I, I think you're right about that. I also agree. And, you know, part of this is because of my own Christian faith. I do believe in forgiveness. And I think that if people do the work to show that they have learned and that they have changed, that they do deserve an opportunity to have a second chance. But they have to do the work. Yeah. All right. Uh, you know, we, I hope, I hope, I hope all my fingers and toes are crossed that we're coming out of the pandemic and oh, yes. theaters seem to have survived. I'm kind of surprised by that. They, they, they hung in there, mm-hmm. but I also think it's different now. I, I mean, I think the Spider-Mans are always going to score. I think that's a community experience. It's a big screen. It's, it's a blockbuster. It's a roller coaster. but I think like a, the Oscar bait films, many of them, which have really struggled at the theaters, I sense that there may not be a home for them down the road, or maybe that they're the VOD or streaming platforms may be their their initial destination. What, what are your thoughts about sort of the theater experience now? Uh, again, assuming things get better and 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 you know the pandemic is officially waning, as opposed to you know just taking a, a knee. I think theaters will survive because of the franchise movies, like the superhero movies, Spider Man, the Batman, which is opening today. I think we're already one foot in that realm where anything that's aimed at adults or not based on some existing property is moving towards the streaming avenues. I think that's going to continue. My big pet peeve with movies right now is that literally almost everything is based on something else. Mm-hmm. For example, when, when in 1984, I went to see this movie called Ghostbusters, and it blew my mind because it was fresh and it was original and I'd never seen anything like it before. And I didn't know those characters. I didn't know that world. And these days, kids don't have that. They go to the movies and well, they're seeing a new Ghostbusters because they've made another sequel to it. They're seeing another adaptation of a comic book hero they're already familiar with. And I feel like these blockbuster movies will help theaters survive, but at the same time, it takes a toll on the audience because kids don't get that magic of walking into a movie that shows you something that you are completely unfamiliar with and something that you have never seen before. And I kind of lament the fact that they're not they can see the new Ghostbusters movie, meaning Ghostbusters Afterlife, but they're never going to see the new Ghostbusters movie. That's a great that point. The new I mean, thing that just blows them out of the back of the theater. What they're seeing are kind of copycats or reimaginings, and they could always go back the next day and just watch the original and kind of piece it together. Right. Or they saw the original, and now they're coming to the theater. I think part of that, and I don't, I don't disagree with any of that, I think a lot of this is our fault. I think when they have these original stories sometimes, they absolutely flop. And some of them maybe deserve mm-hmm. to flop because maybe they're not great. But I, I, I think we are training Hollywood that if you do a recreation or a remake or anything or anything bat-related, that we will show up in droves on opening weekend. And if you're a Hollywood studio and you're throwing all this money at it, at projects, where's the impetus to have that original Ghostbusters? I don't, I don't even know. I think we're 
I think it's our fault often. And, and you know, I mean, Hollywood may be eager to, to kind of pile <laughs> on. But, I, you know, yeah. I think if we took more risks as, as audiences, then maybe that'd be, that would result in more original stories. I agree. And the only movie really lately that's been original and a blockbuster was Free Guy with Ryan Reynolds last summer. And the first thing that they did was announce that they were going to make a sequel. To it. <laughs> that's right. I would rather see that same creative team go uh, out and make another original high concept movie. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the few really good surprises for me. I, I enjoyed that one. Uh, Mike, before we let yeah, you go, there are uh, I was really curious about the Batman. I've seen it. I have mixed feelings. But looking ahead to 2022, uh, <laughs> and you can pick a sequel or a remake, or there's no there's no harm in that. Is there any one film you're kind of really eager to see for for any specific reason? Uh, I already saw my most anticipated movie of the year, which was Studio Six Six Six, starring my favorite band, the Foo Fighters. Uh, but beyond that, you know, there's a movie coming out uh, later this month called X, that was written and directed by Ty West, a really interesting horror independent filmmaker. And that that one has my interest, again, because it's something that we haven't seen before. It looks original. It looks fresh. So I'm excited about that. And really, beyond that, the answer would be anything that I don't know is on the horizon. You yeah. know, whatever movie comes out later this year that comes out of a festival, it becomes an awards favorite or something that's just going to show me something new. I really like Ty West. I feel like he, I feel like he hasn't been as active as, as I as he once was, but here's, I'm going to pick your brain. He, I think he directed a Western with Ethan Hawke and John Travolta, something in the shadow of something or other. I'm drawing a yeah. partial blank, but I really enjoyed that movie. I think it was on Netflix. I don't know if it is now, but he's a really interesting, thoughtful filmmaker, and he takes his time, especially with his horror movies. There's a real yeah. slow burn going on, but they're almost always worth it, so uh, I, I'm with you there. Mike, thank you for joining Right on Hollywood. Uh, you can see all of Mike's reviews at ILC.com, which is both a great name and in a URL. I kind of wish I grabbed years ago because <laughs> that's pretty cool, pretty sweet, right to the point. Mike, thanks so much, thanks. and uh, keep doing a good job. Thanks for having me. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Thank you for listening to Right on Hollywood, part of the Just the News podcasting family. No book plug this week. I think you've earned a break from that. But I want to give some love to my fellow podcasters. These are the people I listen to a lot. They give me a lot of information, almost spiritual comfort at times. That seems like a weird thing to say about podcasting, but in our troubled times, it really does accurately describe why I listen to them. And I think top of my list is the Adam and Dr. Drew show. Now, I, I don't say grew up on Loveline, but at one point in my life, it was my complete addiction. It was a great radio show. They reached out to young people who were suffering. They had lots of issues. It could be drugs. It could be emotional. It could be abuse. And they really kind of guided them in a more productive, happier path. I just thought it was a brilliant show. Of course, Adam Carolla is the comedian. Dr. Drew Pinsky is the doctor. It was a perfect combination. Now, they do some of that still. Their callers are older, generally speaking, but it's the way they treat society, the way they break it down. It's almost like a therapy session for me. It really is. It's just wonderful. It's comforting. It's also illuminating, too. I feel like I learned something about the human experience when I listen to that show. Plus, they often watch Love Boat reruns, and that is just killer. I need to catch up on them because that show was crazy. It was such a 
time capsule of TV back in the late 1970s, early 80s. And what they got away with on the show is bizarre. So if you don't even love Dr. Drew and Adam Carolla, but you're curious about the love, love Boat, you need to listen to the Adam and Dr. Drew show. It's great. Another great podcast is Film Threat. It's pure movie talk without the woke. And what's better than that? Again, that's Chris Gore, the founder of Film Threat. He's a wonderful conversationalist. He's got great insights into films. And again, it's just about the movies. It's wonderful. Another cool show, Tyler Fisher has a podcast that's witty and wise, and he's such a good impressionist. He slips into different voices, gosh, every few minutes. It's wonderful. It's smart. It's funny. It's also very confessional, I think in a way that's really kind of healthy and also engaging. I love that show. And finally, Tim Dillon's self-titled show feels like Howard Stern, the way it used to be. Funny, irreverent, brave, smart, interesting. He's not following a template. He's blazing his own path. And he's not the phony Hollywood brave. He's the real deal. Give that one a listen. Well, that's enough love for my fellow podcasters. Everyone have a great week. We'll do it all again next time. Thanks for listening to the Right on Hollywood podcast, part of the Just the News Network. We'd love to hear from you about the show. You can email Kristen at HollywoodandToto.com. And please don't forget to rate and review us at Apple Podcasts. Five-star reviews make our day. But just speak from the heart. Free speech matters more than ever.